Morrison demands workers take pay cuts. Voting has started. The third leaders debate is on tonight. And the good news is about offshore wind and coral reefs. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your host, Ben Davison. And joining me, as always, is the delightful, the magnificent, the best-selling author of QAnon and Honor, Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, and soon to be appearing at the Queenscliff, Queenscliff Literary Festival. Yes, that's this weekend. Van Badham, how are you, Van? Well, Ben, uh, given that I live with you, I think you know I'm pretty good. I have a puppy on my lap. Yes, we should all have a puppy on our lap. Why, why? It's a secret to happiness, isn't it? You would think that during an election campaign, someone would be promising a puppy for every lap. Well, I've got to say, Anthony Albanese did uh, publish on Instagram the other day a photo of a very cute Dachshund, and it was persuasive. It was. It was. I noticed Germanicus has firmly locked in his vote. He will be voting Labor. Uh, we may have a job on convincing the returning officers at the booth to let him vote. Well, uh, Germanicus, as people will remember, was quite an ardent campaigner in the marriage equality postal survey referendum thing. Went door to door with his grandma and you knocking and being cute. He was. And, uh, of course, we won that one rather convincingly. There you go. It's all down to the dash hounds. Speaking of the dog race that is the federal election. That's probably the best description I've heard so far. We, we, dog uh, race. We have 10 days, 10 days until it's all over. I feel like I should stand up like I, I you know, grew up around dog racing as a kid. I'm very public about this fact. And uh, it was much more well-organised and streamlined than the campaign that we've seen so far. Yeah, look, it's been it's been an interesting one. I think, you know, we last week, if you uh, didn't catch our episode last week, we talked to Stephen Donnelly from Socially Democratic and Dunn Street. Socially uh, Democratic is the podcast. Dunn Street is the consultancy. And uh, went through sort of where things are up to at the midway point of the campaign. Since then, of course, Van, you did a... Uh, watch along for the second debate with Francis Leach. Well, yeah. So Francis Leach, who is amongst many other things, was famous in my generation for hosting three hours of power on Triple J, sports broadcaster, media bon vivant. He and I had this crazy idea about doing parallel universe sky uh, debate coverage. The two of us set up at the ACTU and ACTU studios with a couple of friends, Stephen Donnelly being one of them, uh, Liam O'Brien being another, and commentated the debate in the way that in a parallel universe, a left-wing version of Sky might. And we were expecting like a couple of hundred people and, you know, solid comrades. Sure. 10,000 people joined in, so we're obviously doing it again. And we'll, we'll talk more about that later on because, uh, of course, it is the best version of the Mirror Universe, I have to say. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with Star Trek, you might have some inkling of what I'm talking about there. <laughs> it's well worth a watch, and we'll talk more about it later on. But the big news story today, uh, and has really been building over the course of the campaign, it came up during the second debate when. Anthony Albanese asked Scott Morrison, do you think that every worker in Australia should be paid the minimum wage? And what did Scott Morrison respond with, Van? Oh, it's complicated. It depends. It depends. Sorry. It, it depends. depends. It depends. It's very complicated. Not, not even as much as it's complicated. It depends. Now, I'm going to framework this conversation by, by a, a very famous saying in America, which is anybody who thinks you don't deserve minimum wage 
is a person who would pay you nothing if they thought they could get away with it. And absolutely that was the case on Sunday night. Scott Morrison tried to make out as though Uber drivers and Fedora riders uh, are all entrepreneurial spirits. Oh, yeah, entrepreneurs, leading me to be absolutely convinced just Scott Morrison has no connections with those kind of jobs or experience of what those lives are like at all and how people live them and the kind of people who work those jobs. Because there's been, you know, I have been a gig worker my entire professional life. You know, it's, do, do you do you really think of me as an entrepreneur? No, I, I have to admit I don't see you as an entrepreneur. But, you know, look, there are there are genuine entrepreneurs out there and the best of luck to them. What How I'd describe those sorts of relationships, though, uh, as dependent contractors or sham contractors. Sham contractors is a good one. Digital sham contracting. Digital sham contracting, I think, is the appropriate term. These are all terms that are used in other parts of the world to describe the exploitation of labour conditions that these gaps in the industrial system have allowed to occur. Absolutely. And since then, of course, on Monday, <sighs> Australian unions who advocate for an increase in the minimum wage and put the case for the minimum wage every single year. And if you want to be a union member and get better wages, go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. Wow stands for week on Wednesday. W-O-W. The ACTU increased their claim for the minimum wage from 5% to 55 Because wages have got to keep pace with inflation. Otherwise- You revolutionary. I know. Otherwise, workers are getting a pay cut in real terms. We have said on this show before, workers this year are $2,000 off, uh, $2,000 worse off this year than they were last year because the price of everything has gone up. It costs $5 to buy an iceberg lettuce now. It is really remarkable, this debate, right? So Anthony Albanese was asked, do you support an increase in the minimum wage that matches inflation? And he said, absolutely. Like his, his position on this is well, if- Pay people so they can survive in the economy of which they're a part. And it's interesting to- God, what a red. And, and, it, and of course, it has set off- Absolute ideologues on the right. Oh, conniptions. Just going bananas. AFR conniptions. We're all going back to the 70s. I tweeted because, oh, you know, inflation's going to be out of control. People putting in wage claims. And it's like, yes, there was stagflation in the 1970s. And I don't think there are any credible economists left alive who don't attribute to the fact that there was an artificial oil boycott from oil producing nations that drove up the cost of oil by 300 to 400%. I think we can look at very specific economic conditions around stagflation in the 1970s now. And, it, of course, it's also interesting to note that all these people sort of losing their minds about this idea that... Uh, well-paid, middle-class, right-wing schmucks who work for <laughs> right-wing organisations. Yeah, and are not actually factoring in that last year, just last year, the Fair Work Commission put up the minimum wage by 2.5%. And no one noticed because they don't know anyone and, who's on minimum wage. And, and Van, what was inflation at the time? It was 1%. Oh, so wage rises were double the rate of inflation, but they didn't have conniptions, uh, there wasn't stagflation, and we all didn't get into a big time-travelling spaceship, blast those tachyons and end up back during the oil crisis. 
I get so angry. I get I so angry. You're so funny. I'm, I'm big on the oil reserve. You're big on the oil crisis. Oh, yeah, well, because- These are our defining- Oil-based interests. All right, you. Yes, oil-based interests. We do live in a petrol economy. Yes, we do. Let's talk about it, Ben. You want to talk about strategic oil reserves? I'll talk about the 1970s oil crisis. Look, we we just don't have time to revisit (laughs) the oil crisis because, I mean, the wages issue is live. It's happening now as we speak. You know, both uh, Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese this morning gave press conferences. They were asked about it. Morrison has has literally said, uh, that it's economic vandalism. He then denied that in this morning's press conference. Even though there's a recording of him saying it? Absolutely. He's that guy. He's saying that it's all just Anthony Albanese thought bubbles. Of course, it's not thought bubbles. No, given the fact that Anthony Albanese is the one with the, uh, what was it again, economics degree from Sydney Uni that Scott Morrison doesn't have. This well, is what I love. Scott Morrison's been trying to frame Albanese for the whole election with the, this man has, he's never run, a, a, he's never delivered a budget, he's uh, never run a, an economy. Uh, and it's like, and you were from Tourism Australia and spent $180 million on Lara Bingle without, by the way, attracting a single extra tourist to Australia. That was your professional history you bought into the job, brother. He basically, he is basically a used car salesman who doesn't understand why he's not making any money when he doesn't sell any cars. He's literally a failed tourism campaigner. What, and what kind of incompetent do you have to be to not be able to sell Australian beaches overseas? It's pretty amazing. He, he of course, he's had ministers rolled out to say that it's unprecedented to have the government intervene in the uh, minimum wage case, which is absolutely not true. Morrison's own government has put in a submission. Every government has put in a submission since the establishment of the Fair Work Commission. And interestingly, in the Morrison government submission to the minimum wage, there is literally a chapter called The Importance of Low-Paid Work. And another chapter, which is somewhat optimistically called The Stepping Stone Effect, where they basically argue it's important to have low-paid jobs because they provide a stepping stone for people to other jobs. Whereas what we know and what is- is They provide a stepping stone to other low-paid jobs. In fact, having a low-paid job generally traps you in a cycle where you have to accumulate more low-paid jobs that you work simultaneously in order to feed yourself. And that research has come out in the last few weeks. Uh, Again, the ACTU uh, got some researchers together who looked at this issue around multiple jobs. We have record numbers of Australians holding multiple jobs. And if you hold more than one job, you are on average being paid less than someone who has one job. So you're absolutely right, Van. Like you've nailed the issue. Low-paid workers are not using low-paid jobs as stepping stones to suddenly become merchant bankers at Macquarie. What's happening is they're accumulating multiple low-paid jobs to keep the rent over their head. Sorry, to keep the roof over their head when the rent is due. That's the reality. Morrison just, just has no engagement with this at all. Like, it's just so bizarre. At the same time, you know, we've got the usual suspects going, now's not the right time for a wage increase. I seem to remember it wasn't the right time for a wage increase when inflation was low. 
Now's not the right time for a wage increase when inflation is high. But, I mean, Waleed Ali, even though you and I were highly critical of his economic insights. Indeed on, we were. On Insiders the other day. You can check out our weekend wrap for my criticisms of Waleed's uh, economic insights. Yes, I wouldn't necessarily describe them as insights, so much as comforting mythologies one tells to oneself, Waleed. However, he did get one thing right, which was he was saying that that Morrison's line has been the economy's been going so great, you should vote for us again. And now that the economy is clearly in pieces, uh, Morrison's gone, oh, well, you know, in times of confusion, you should definitely vote for us again. There is literally no argument, uh, no consistent argument, that uh, Scott Morrison would acknowledge either on his own behalf or anybody else's. It's all making it up as one goes along in a desperate attempt to cling on to power. And, of course, what's he doing? He's accusing Alba of making it up as he goes along. Mm. It, it is hardly a revolutionary idea that the leader of the Labor Party would argue that wages should keep pace with the cost of living. And I just want to acknowledge something very funny happened today, everybody. Uh, a columnist for the Daily Telegraph called Vicky Campion, whose name may seem a little bit familiar, has written a very impassioned article saying that Labor has abandoned the working class. I mean, there are many interesting details to this. One, uh, Labor is it, how is Labor abandoning the working class by literally going to an election on a platform of wage rises for working class people? That's very interesting. Not to mention all the other industrial reforms. Childcare, yeah, aged care, aged care uh, NDIS. What we used reform. to call the social wage. Yes, or the welfare state, which was a pretty yeah. transformative experience for the working class in the West. My lordy. Um, not only that. But um, I'm wondering if Vicky Campion has a bit of skin in this game politically. Well, because Vicky Campion is, of course, married to Barnaby Joyce. And the mother of his children. In fact, she was the National Party staffer, wasn't she? She was. And, of course, Barnaby yes. Joyce remains leader of the National Party. Look, I want to just debunk some of the mythology around this because there is always there is always fear that raising wages will cost jobs. It's, it's been pumped into us for 40 years. You've mentioned it's been a, a fundamental part of the neoliberal economic narrative since the 1970s, and you do see people repeat it, right? Like even Waleed Ali kind of repeated the inverse of that on Sunday when he said, well, maybe wage, you know, lack of wage growth will mean inflation doesn't skyrocket. But, of course, the, the reality is, and this comes from Morrison's own Treasury Secretary, Dr. Stephen Kennedy, this is a guy, Scott Morrison, appointed to lead the Treasury of the Commonwealth of Australia. He has testified to the Senate that, and I quote, if we can achieve productivity growth of 1.5% and assuming inflation growth of 2.5%, the nominal wages can grow at 4% and put no pressure on inflation. But Ben, these are facts. Why are you talking about facts in the context of a federal election campaign? Why are you doing that? What devilry is this? Well, because it's important. It's important that people understand that wage increases are only inflationary if they go up by more than inflation plus productivity increases. So even saying... So if productivity declines, if we are producing less stuff and doing less work and wages outstrip inflation... Then they're inflationary. Then they're inflationary. But that's not been happening. In fact, productivity has been going up exponentially for four decades since, funnily enough, Ben, 
What period of stagflation caused by the oil boycotts of the 1970s? Well, again, research came out during the election. It's all there in, in the public domain, black and white. Inflation uh, productivity since 2013 has gone up by over 10 percentage points. Wages, however, have not even kept pace with inflation and have gone up just over one percentage point. Now, that means there's a huge capacity. And in fact, in fact, don't take my word for it. Listen to Dr. Jeff Borland, Melbourne University economic professor, who says, and I quote, in some ways, you could see 5% as a reasonable moderate increase given the recent inflation number and given we are in an environment of high labor demand. Or if academics aren't your thing, is the former ANZ, Big Four Bank, not usually someone we would quote on this show, Chief Economist Warren Hogan, who supports a big lift in minimum wages to prevent the development of, and I quote, an underclass of working poor. Yeah, I'd like to avoid an underclass of working poor. How do you feel about that, Ben? Look, I'd really like to avoid it too. Uh, obviously, I'd like to get rid of an underclass of poor. I think building a welfare state is generally how you keep people enfranchised within the economy during periods of their life where, for reasons that they usually enter involuntarily, um, they can't work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the one of the big things that has sort of come through in this debate is that there's the old thinking that we lower unemployment and that will raise wages is totally broken. Totally, totally broken. And in fact, according to your colleague at The Guardian, Paul Carp, despite unemployment- Paul hail Paul Carp. Despite unemployment falling to 4%, many workers will are still receiving nominal rises of 2.5%, a pay cut in real terms, because of public sector pay caps and workplace pay deals that locked in lower rates before the inflation surge. So there is- absolute structural issues in our economy that need to be addressed to lift wages. And frankly, Morrison going out there saying that there's no law you pass that makes your wages go up, the way wages rise is unemployment goes down, literally. That's a quote. The way wages rise is unemployment goes down. Yet then we have record unemployment, record unemployment. And yet the RBA is saying, Wages won't go up until the middle of 2023. When you say record unemployment, are you meaning that we have a really large number of people in or out of the workforce? Sorry, we have record low unemployment. There we go. Record low unemployment. So a good figure that should be, if their theory worked, driving up wages. Yeah, but that's not happening. And we know that's not happening because... The entire economic system has been jury-rigged by conservative governments to suit capitalist interests for 40 years. Everything from this totally ridiculous artificial suppression of public sector wages. There is a wage cap in the public service. And what that means is that one of the mechanisms available in the economy for for competition in the labour market with people going, why would I work for grubby multinational corporation for $200,000 a year when I could work for the government and serve my country for 220 plus plexi time, whatever, whatever. Not that there's a lot of 220,000 
jobs in the public sector. No, but this is what I'm saying. This is no, I'm using these figures deliberately because we're always told, you know, these fat cats in the public service and we've got to trim the fat and cut the waste. And this has been yeah. you're a little younger than me. This I remember Fraser running on this in the 1970s. That yeah. is how old I am and remember those commercials very well. In fact, the liberals used it was my favorite ad as a kid. My parents were horrified. The parent the liberals used this, oh the union's waged man's out of control. And it must have been it's the election in the 70s the first election in the 70s i remember like 77 or 78 and it they had a map of australia that was a red balloon oh, right. and the red balloon represented the labor party and those dastardly unions putting in wage claims and the balloon got bigger and bigger and bigger until australia was about to pop and it represented inflation and of course i was three or something and thought this was the <laughs> best ad on television because i love balloons and i loved the color red but you but you're absolutely right because again you know there is there are facts there is reality here there is observable uh, inputs that we can see and use to make proper decisions and a report by Jim Stanford and professors Andrew Stewart and Tess Hardy has found not only that there's no systemic relationship between wage growth and labor demand that idea that lower unemployment lifts wages that doesn't exist that's not real you can't observe that it's not a phenomenon that exists but actually that there are observable factors that have been driving down wages, one of which is pay caps in the public sector. Another is the minimum wage falling further and further behind median wages. That is, if you're low paid, you're falling further behind the average worker. The erosion of collective bargaining, so our capacity as workers to band together in union and demand wage increases commensurate with our productivity gains. Has been absolutely hit by some of the strictest laws against industrial organising in the world. And it, it boggles the mind. And I think there's a lot of people in this country who remember the 70s or the 80s or even the early 90s where there, these laws didn't exist and they don't quite understand why younger people don't just go on strike or just demand higher wages or, you know, get the union involved. And it's like, because if you do those things and you don't fill in the six weeks worth of paperwork in the correct order with the correct pen and the 2B pencil, then you cop a $10,000, $25,000 fine. Per infringement. And that's the kind of thing that Australian Tories have done to restrict people's ability to collectively bargain. Of course, there is rampant wage theft. There are stories all the time. And we're not talking about the cafe owner who just gets the calculation wrong and doesn't read the pay table correctly, or even the you know dodgy cafe owner who's deliberately doing the wrong thing. We're talking about multi-billion dollar Australian companies who spend more money on their wage software than most small businesses would bring in in a year. They have underpaid hundreds of millions of dollars to workers. Well, this was the thing we've talked about Austal, which was the defence con- naval defence contractor where Morrison went to, you know, do a bit of high-vis cosplay as usual and launch a, oh, we're going to give these people heaps of money. And the ETU had told Morrison weeks earlier that Austell had, that Morrison's own watchdog, the Fair Work Commission, had identified Austell had been engaging in wage theft, wage theft 
of workers who had already been shipped in from the Philippines, exploited guest workers who were subjected to wage theft, and this is the kind of company who's got Morrison rewards with contracts. And it's so ironic because Morrison today has said again, and he'll probably keep saying, the government has no magic wand it can wave to raise wages. But the reality is the government can raise wages. It can remove the pay cap. It can fund public services. There is a claim right now in the commission saying that aged care workers should get a 25% increase in their pay, that they are underpaid by virtue of the, the gender of the bulk of the staff. The government could support that. Labor has said it will support that. It could say it supports a, a minimum wage increase that at least keeps pace with inflation. It could say if you want to be a contractor to government, with like Austal or any of the other contractors doing infrastructure work or defence work or whatever it is, you've got to have a collective agreement. You've got to pay people at least award wages. We're going to audit you on that. There's lots of things government can do. It could criminalise wage theft. It could say that gig workers are subject to minimum award conditions. Oh, but then would we still be entrepreneurs? Well, this is the funny thing. I mean, I know this, Ben, like whenever the invoices go out for the gigs that I do, you know, and I sometimes spend weeks waiting to get paid and, you know, have no job security, don't know when the next paycheck is coming. I mean, I really feel like an entrepreneur. I'm just like, yeah, I'm basically like one of those guys who built all of those cars and buildings in America, one of those oil barons who turn up in movies. I'm jet from giant, you know, real entrepreneur. Well, it is It is one of those things, Van, because as you know and as regular listeners to this show know, I've done some work for HireUp who are in the NDIS sector. They are a registered uh, NDIS provider. They are tech-based and they employ people. And, and they're a model, right? Like they're using tech to connect people, to deliver the NDIS, and they pay their workers the award wage they, they get training, they get all the things. This idea that somehow or another gig economy mean is something different and changes our entire society. It's like, no, you're just using a different way. It, it was text messages and before that it was phone calls and before that it was rosters posted up every day and before that it was the foreman at the factory gate picking the workers every morning. These are the exploitation of workers has happened again and again and again, and the solutions are always the same. They are to regulate. They are to unionise. They are to give workers respect and recognition as employees who have rights and responsibilities in the workplace. And I, I get fired up about it, as you can tell. Yeah, I get fired up about it too. Well, like it, it just sounds like it's obviously from my own personal experience. The fact that people like me are now told we have portfolio careers. Yeah. Yes, a portfolio career of constantly chasing work and contracts. And somebody made this point the other day. I was talking on uh, Facebook about electric cars. Yeah. All right, and electric vehicles and that electric vehicles are one of the many, many mechanisms we need to turn on in order to reduce emissions. They're one of many things that we can do. And I I remembered very poisonously Scott Morrison's comments at the last election when Labor had a big electric vehicle policy. They've still got one, by the way, which is good news, um, where he was like, oh, you know, Australia's like cars with a bit of grunt. Electric vehicles will kill the weekend. 
which is very interesting. I would like to do a shout out to Tesla Miranda, the electric vehicle car brokership, which is in Scott Morrison's own seat of Cook. They must be feeling very supported. Interesting too, because like people in the Sutherland Shire really love the weekend. And I feel I should yeah. mention that as someone who, unlike Scott Morrison, grew up there. However, um, and somebody was saying, you know, it wasn't electric vehicles killed the weekend. It was the Liberal Party. That's right. You know, and all the things. And, you know, I was thinking about it, Ben, and I can't think of a weekend that you and I have had free to ourselves in months. You oh, and I have been doing paid longer work. Longer than months. Yeah. You and I have been doing paid work every weekend for months. And most Australians do. And, and you know, people say, I'll oh, thank God for the weekend. Don't thank God. Thank the union movement. because. Workers combining together in union deliver those things. And liberal governments working with lobbyists take them away. That's what happens. That's what we've seen over the last decade. And when we say lobbyists, we mean private businesses that are employed by corporations yeah. to, to negotiate with government like unfair unearned advantages that maximise their profit and opportunity at the expense of the people who work for them. Sorry to get a bit 19th century on everybody. True. I mean, I get that accusation. I had someone who shall remain nameless because they don't deserve the attention tell me that the problem with my politics, they were stuck in the 19th century. And I'll, I was like, I'll be a post-Marxist in post-capitalism. Like, the conditions are still with us. In fact, because of this rampant exploitation in the workforce, we are going back to the conditions that union movements and social democratic parties all over the world fought for years and years and years to improve, and the Tories have done everything they can to strip back. And it's really troubling to see how the Morrison government has injected billions of dollars into supporting that side of the equation. You know, when you think about aged care, the NDIS, childcare, when you think about how the Morrison government has prioritised giving money to those corporations that prioritise profit over care who, with, no, with no strings attached. You know, he's been going around the countryside during this election campaign giving money to companies without any strings attached. There was one he did in Gilmore just yesterday or Monday, and David Crow called it out and said, look, you've given, I think it was $8 million to this company down the road. I can't see whether that's equity, whether the government now owns part of that business, or whether that's a loan and that business is going to have to pay it back, or what that money, how that money is structured. And Morrison and his candidate for Gilmore, who I will not name, um, basically said, it's a grant to help them, you know, improve their business and reduce emissions and have clean energy. And he's done this again and again and again. We saw him give money to a whiskey company in Tasmania. Four million dollars. Profitable companies getting money from the government. Now, these no are just, strings attached. These are just blatant cash handouts. But the way they structure programs, programs that are designed to help us, like aged care, NDIS, childcare. I'm going to keep saying them because they're absolutely fundamentally vital to the social wage, to the welfare state, are designed now to prioritise profit over care. And they don't care. They don't care if the workers are exploited. They don't care if the food that gets served to people in aged care homes. Is slop. They don't care what actually happens in someone's home when a worker rocks up, you know, who's an who's a entrepreneur, in inverted commas, 
you know, who's looking to maximize their their dollar. Like, and ultimately what happens? They put downward pressure on cutting funding and cutting support, but keeping the profit margin. And that's what we're seeing. Like we've had a decade of it, and we are now at the very pointy end where even the minimum wage, even just keeping up with the cost of living is too much for them to accept. I do get really frustrated uh, that people think that this is just economic logic. And when I say people, I mean journalists. And I've seen journalists who aren't politically aligned, who aren't commentators, but who are reporters, asking questions within this frame that, oh, well, if wages go up, oh, won't that mean that, you know, people will go broke? Like it's economic nonsense. And it's it's because there has been just this – 40 years of relentless, relentless insistence that trickle-down economics works, that neoliberalism is the end of history, that, you know, it's all about markets and there will be market mechanisms here and we need to concentrate opportunities uh, amongst wealthy employers because they're the only ones, you know, with the capacity to and will give taxpayers money to wealthy capitalists like the ones who own yep. the distillery in Tasmania or whoever these randos are in um, Gilmore. Gilmore or Austell or anybody will just give them money because they'll know what to do with it because they're capitalists. It's like capitalists do one thing with money. They accumulate it as capital and then they have baths in it like Scrooge McDuck. And the, and the best example, the most classic example that I can give is Qantas. Qantas and Alan Joyce. Uh-oh, Ben's going to talk about Qantas. Because, frankly, what happened with Qantas during the pandemic and post-pandemic is an absolute disgrace. Scott Morrison, if he had a decent bone in his body, if he had a shred of dignity, he would be demanding Alan Joyce repay the billions of dollars that the taxpayers gave that man and that company during the pandemic because he has unlawfully, it has now been found multiple times in federal court, that he has unlawfully- Alan Joyce has unlawfully- Sacked 2,000 workers from Qantas. He used the money Scott Morrison gave him to reinvigorate the Qantas fleet, to undercut the market, the market that was so important that we protect the market, that the that we couldn't possibly nationalise Qantas. We couldn't take an equity stake in Qantas to keep the skies open. No, 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 no. We just had to prop up the market by pumping money into Alan Joyce's checkbook. Well, he used that money to smash his rivals. He's now bought out another airline, Alliance Air- Airways. He has massively undercut Virgin. He's put pressure on Rex to the point where it will probably suffer and fold. It's now trying to lobby for government support of its own. It creates an arms race where one set of capitalists is demanding support while another set of capitalists but is demanding support. But they are all on the taxpayer teat. And it's and, our money. And our this money. is what is so disgusting because there are valuable members of what I like to refer to as society who aren't receiving enough support to contribute and function. You know, this is the thing. While the NDIS falls apart, the, the, the people covered by the NDIS include literal millions of people who are capable of, of work, who want to work, who want to pursue education, who deserve to have opportunities with the, within the economy mm, and mm. broader society and need support for various reasons to do that. And it's like, I constantly think of the the motto of the Finnish education system, 
which is don't waste a brain, where Finland in the 1970s looked at what their available resources were and were like, we don't have the North Sea oil that, that the Norwegians do. We don't have various things. What do we have that we can develop? The brains of our people. Yeah. And pump all this money into education and equity and, you know, experimental social programs, looking at what would work, like amazing uh, aged care policy in Finland, entire parts of cities with purpose-built accommodation for older single women, so with community, and yeah. it, like amazing, like just incredible. And you look at Australia and you look at we are wasting oh, our brains so by creating obstacles for participation in social activity. Like, Well, he, here's, here's a classic that I caught on but to. But let's give money to a distillery. And, and to Qantas because – the other thing is, so Qantas sacked 2,000 people. Yesterday, I think it was yesterday, maybe the day before, the campaigns ended up at a jobs fair because, of course, politics is always about jobs. Morrison was asked one question the other day and he gave an answer, literally just said the word jobs five times. Jobs, jobs, jobs. So is that a jobs, jobs fair? Jobs, jobs, Guess, jobs, who jobs, jobs, jobs. Guess who was, else was at the jobs fair? Alan Joyce? No, but Qantas was there. And guess how many people they were recruiting? How many? 2,000. Wow, didn't they just sack 2,000 people? This is, this is the great tragedy, right, that you have people, instead of doing what Finland does, instead of doing what smart economies are doing, and that is maximising the opportunity for each person to contribute and to gain and to lift up and to lift up the communities that they're in, you basically have a handful of CEOs and a political party in the Liberal National Conglomerate driving down and wasting the talent and the capability of thousands and thousands, in fact, millions of Australians. And those examples, I, I pull them out. I know people think, oh, you know, you're always on about Qantas or the Strategic Oil Reserve. I use those as examples. I love you because you're obsessed with the Strategic Oil Reserve. <laughs> They're examples. It's literally the basis of our relationship. All my life, I was just looking for that partner, my intellectual equal, would come to a relationship going, let me tell you something about the strategic oil reserves. That's what I wanted better. That's what I found well, in you. They are examples that show what is happening right around the country in many, many, many different ways. And, and I'm sure lots of people, when we get listeners, bands send us examples all the yeah, time. Yeah, we do all and, the time. And it's overwhelming, frankly. I want can I, can I read out some of the, these are actually from the ABC news blog people talking about the minimum wage, because I think these are really interesting. You know, all the economic debate and, you know, obviously the Tory media going bananas and Morrison trying to pretend like somehow or another, you know, matching the rate of inflation is, is destructive. This is what actual people in Australia think about raising the minimum wage by 5.1%. This is a guy named Andrew says, Imagine trying to live on $42,384.84 a year, and that is the figure if 5.1% was added. We need to support the battlers. Someone who wrote themselves down as confused wrote, the government is complaining about people on lowest incomes getting increase in minimum wage to keep up with inflation because they say it will lead to higher inflation. So why then are they going ahead with stage three tax cuts for middle to high income earners that will put much more money in people's pockets? Why isn't this inflationary? Chris says, yes, for far too long, wage and salary workers have taken the brunt of wage cuts, penalty rates, and wage rises, and yet company profits at a record high. Labor is doing the right thing by workers after a decade of criminal neglect from the LNP and Morrison. Somebody named Simples, got to love a good reference to an ad, says, 
It's fairly simple. If everything costs 5.1% more and your wage only goes up by 3%, you've got a pay cut. And we know that if you happen to be in a rental, then things have gone up much more than that. And if you're on minimum wage, odds are you're in a rental. Kate says, I do think minimum wage increase is a great way to start, but someone needs to address the elephant in the room, health and education pay rises. I know this is always fobbed off as a state issue. The pressure from the federal government would have an effect. New South Wales has seen multiple strikes by public education teachers and public health nurses and allied health staff. Are the politicians tone deaf? This is a big voter base. And I think absolute shout out to the Teachers Federation and the Australian Nursing Midwifery Federation, and of course the United Workers Union, where uh, early childhood educators went on strike. All three of those unions have had strikes uh, in New South Wales, in South Australia, in WA, uh, and also I think in parts of Queensland over the course of the last couple of weeks to try and get wages moving again, yeah. to try and get job security in these workforces, to get people act, you know, to get the right number of nurses. In nursing homes to make sure that our children are being taught in early childhood, not one to 45, but one to 20, these sorts of things. So important. And I think that's a good point. You know, these are big voter bases and we are in an election, 10 days to go. And of course, voting is already open, Van. Yep. It's, it's extraordinary. It started on Monday, voting opened up. Yep. Pre-poll, we're seeing record numbers. I have to vote pre-poll. I was saying this on Twitter yesterday. I'm so, the tension is just burning within me. There have been extraordinary numbers of people at pre-poll and they've been interviewed saying the same thing. Um, There is a huge anti-Morrison vote at pre-poll, people just going, I want it over, I just need to get it out of my system. And we've seen that media, various media agencies are reporting on that. And I was just thinking like, I get pretty riled up during elections anyway, as you you know better than most people. This is true. This is true. And by the way, I just like to publicly state that time I made all those people cry, I regret nothing. Um, and I really regret nothing. In fact, it's one of my most cherished memories is just how many people I made cry in the same day. Um, don't give me a flyer that I don't want, I think is the moral of that yeah. story. And I was just thinking if I seriously wait until the day of the election and someone shoves a flyer in my hand for someone I do not want to vote for, I will explode. I will actually explode. Well, we don't want you to explode. And, and people will be getting flyers in their mailbox, obviously from the political parties and the candidates and the independent, all the rest of them. And I want to just on my disinformation beat, Yeah, like I did an interview with ABC Bendigo this morning talking about disinformation. And then I was very sad to see that we're back to the old days of fake, um, fake flyers, fake flyers in people's letterboxes. If there is not an authorization on those flyers, it is fake news, people. So if you are getting things in your letterbox and going, hang on, what's this? Have a look. If it doesn't have an authorization with a name and an address. Like it is, it is fake. And if you still think it's out of line, call the party office and go. Did you authorize this? Yeah, absolutely. Really got to be onto it because there have been fake flyers going yeah. along, and some of them are just hateful, prejudiced, bigoted, awful, just gross. Blah. And of course, I mean, we've all kind of come to assume that there'll be disinformation online and uh, on the various social media platforms. But you're absolutely right. Like 
you know, it brings me back to that, to what we were saying before about um, the gig economy. You know, the, the old tactics are still applied even in new mediums, but still in the old mediums as well, right? And that's what we're seeing. There'll be disinformation online, but you're getting it actually in your letterbox. You'll get it in your SMS. You'll get phone calls from randoms. You've got to really weigh these things up. Talk to people you trust. Go to legitimate news sources. Mm. You know, like if it's if it's not a legitimate news source, if it's not a masthead, and it's you know, there's no accountability. Therealnews.com.au. Yes, Euronews. That's one of my favourite fake news websites. They think Marina Abramovich, one mm. of my favourite contemporary artists, is in fact a baby eating witch. Which she is not. Uh, no, she's not a baby. She's a contemporary artist. And, and, and what I want to encourage people to do is to engage with civil society organisations. Yeah. Established civil society organisations because they are doing things. And, and you know, we talked about the NDIS. There's an organisation called People with a Disability Australia, PWDA. Check them out on Twitter and check out the AEC on Twitter as well because they're doing an online seminar with the AEC about how people with a disability can participate in the election, right? Because there's there's lots of barriers. We forget about this for people, whether it's distance, whether it's I've got an 80-year-old mother. I never forget about right? this. Whether yeah. it's age, like whatever it is. And, you know, the misinformation and disinformation can mean people get disenfranchised, don't participate. So engage with your civil society organisations. Engage with your union. Talk to them. See what. See how you can participate. The AEC this time actually is putting flies in people's letterboxes. We got one yesterday from the AEC giving us a whole bunch of different ways. Now, obviously, for some people, um, that's not accessible because it's a it's a written piece of uh, communication on a piece of paper. But there's lots of different things you can do, and of course. That universal enfranchisement is the bedrock of our democracy, isn't it? Ben? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We have universal enfranchisement in this country, which some people call compulsory voting. Yeah. Um, although the voting is not compulsory, you can write whatever you want on your ballot. If you want to set on, like, you know, scribble all over Don't the ballot. Don't set it on fire. Don't set it on fire. That is an election <laughs> offence. If you want to scribble all over your ballot and waste your vote and spit in the eyes of every woman who suffered and died, including Ben's ancestor, something we're very proud of, yes. is that Ben's ancestor, actually, uh, Emily Davison, threw herself under the king's horse at Ascot, um, and she was a suffragette, and literally died for the right of women to vote. So if you want to spit on the grave of Ben's martyred <laughs> ancestor, the suffragette, um, by scribbling like, all over your ballot paper, go ahead. That's your right in a democracy. I, I feel just, like there might be some people who go, well, I, I was going to vote, but I really do want to spit on the grave of Ben's ancestors. <laughs> but look, those people don't listen to the show, Ben. They just write <laughs> nasty things about us on the internet. Oh, However, um, universal enfranchisement exists in this country. It was actually someone from the country party who pushed it by saying as long as we have universal enfranchisement in Australia, it will oblige the government to facilitate the participation of all voters and that living in the country or having a disability or being elderly or being sick or any of these things, like there should not be an obstacle to you exercising your democratic right. And, you know, it's interesting because at the moment Morrison is actually putting in place barriers. And, you know, I don't I don't really go in for, you know, business councils and. Uh, you know, Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry in such and such a place or whatever uh, as being uh, sources I like to cite. But there is an article written by 
uh, a person who works for the Australian Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong that's come out that has blown the whistle on the Morrison government shutting down um, voting centres for Australians in other countries. Because, of course, we know that there are, at any given time, thousands upon thousands of Australians around the world because of work, because of family commitments, maybe sometimes they're on holiday. And we know that during the pandemic, 40,000 Australians were stranded overseas. And this article, uh, I think it was in the Sydney Morning Herald, has highlighted that the Morrison government has shut down polling centres, all of the polling centres in Thailand, Singapore, Japan, Hong Kong, and India. These are five countries where there are huge numbers of Australian citizens because of work, because of family commitments, whatever it might be, who will not be able to vote that this election. That is disgusting, anti-democratic, and I would suggest that all of those people pursue um, anything that looks like a legal remedy to that situation because that is actually against the intent of the Australian Electoral Act. And it'd be really interesting, by the way, if any constitutional lawyers are listening to this, to get some kind of um, credible analysis. I'm obviously not a lawyer, though I do have a fancy set of creative arts degrees. Um, I, I just think that's disgusting and that goes against laws that were introduced in this country in the 1920s. So, Absolutely foul, Scott Morrison, you shonk. Um, I want to talk about something else that's really important when it comes to elections, and particularly Election Day, and that's the democracy sausage and not the argument about onions or no onions. You know, I'm a civil libertarian. Have onions or not, it's okay. I don't judge. I mean, I would never have onions. But if that's always have onions. I'm not going to yuck your yum, (laughs) onion people. Like, go crazy, whatever makes you happy. But I am going to say, can you please make a point of if you you have the dollars to buy a democracy sausage, please do it. Because as I was informed this week, and this made me, this enraged me to my little state school song, Mm -hmm. that state schools have been so criminally underfunded by the Morrison government that they rely on democracy sausage sales at polling booths in schools for one of their biggest fundraisers of the year. So if you support the right to quality public education and you think, oh, my God, even working class children deserve things like quality textbooks or, you know, excursions or art supplies, can you make a point of investing your hard-earned, hard-earned in a democracy sausage and supporting your local state school? Absolutely. And you know what this means, Van? This means that as I go around on election day helping out at different booths, I will come home having stuffed myself silly with democracy sausages all in the name of public education. I really appreciate this, Ben. (laughs) I I realise that my opinions on this are particularly forthright. I love public education. I am a proud scion of it. Absolutely. And I want people to keep that in mind. Absolutely. Well, look, talking about public education, we're going to do a bit of public education tonight, right? Oh, my God, we are. I'm so excited. So as we mentioned earlier in in this episode, Van, you did the second leaders debate, which did devolve into a bit of a shouting match, not from you, but from them. With, with that Francis was unexpected, Lynch. wasn't it? Yep. So you and Francis are at it again tonight uh, from nine o'clock on the Australian Union's Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter pages. And my Facebook. And yep. your Facebook. And I'll share it from mine and from the week on Wednesday. And we encourage everyone to share it. Uh, check it out. 
it was over 11,000 people. It was it was beyond our wildest dreams. Like we wanted to try it out. The ACTU has a studio. They were like, yep, let's give it a go. We were sort of making it up, going let's just try some things, see what happens. And it was an absolute smash. And the way the fo- – I'll just tell people how the format works. You tune in at 9 o'clock. Francis and I are there. We're having um, some really great guests. Savvy, who's a TikTok um, person is she's one of our guests will strack who is from victorian trades hall amazing activist not much about politics will doesn't know also another tiktoker she's one of our guests the, the amazing emma dawson from think tank per capita one of the people with the most sophisticated understanding of the relationship of the welfare state to industrial politics in this country three fantastic experts who will be having a bit of a chat but you tune in at nine We'll be introducing everything. Uh, then when the debate starts, Francis and I stay on the screen. We live tweet. We have a curated Twitter list so you can follow all these trade union celebrities who are commenting on the debate, which is generally pretty funny. I think they prefer trade union leaders to trade union celebrities. No, no, because there are, there are people who don't hold leadership positions yep. who are just cool who are on that list. We've put them there because they have the politics. Because they're cool. Yeah, because they're cool and they know stuff and they're funny. And, um, and Francis and I commentate the debate gogglebox style, uh, not by speaking over people but by tweeting and putting various tweets on screen Q&A style, but we have this amazing collection of emoji puppets. Fantastic. Uh, this was Francis Leach's idea. Um, obviously, my creative arts degrees came in very handy in learning how to interpret the emoji puppet performance, and these were a huge hit last time. And then after the debate, we have the – analysis and the discussion. So we go back to that sort of television style programming and the format really worked for people. We had so much engagement. People felt they were part of a conversation around their values. Yeah. um, And we encourage you to participate. Absolutely. It's really going to be great. There's lots of topics that are going to be happening. This, uh, this debate, obviously some of them we've already covered today. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the liberal candidate from Warringah and her transphobia gets a mention the pandemic. I mean, it is so deep, her transphobia. That's right. The her cost, the prejudice cost. and bigotry, bigotry towards trans children is remarkable. It's outrageous, and that's why we never say her name, and I will never say her name. Um, obviously, NDIS, wages, cost of living, um, education. The, $5 lettuce. The $5 lettuce, all these things, the pandemic and post-pandemic. It's interesting to note, and I'll be interested if it comes up in the debate, actually, Van. Australia's currently running third in the world for cases of COVID, and COVID is now the number two highest cause of death in Australia. Oh. Which I think has sort of flown a bit under oh, the well, radar. Oh, well, it's a crisis and there's no reason to change government, Ben, if there's a crisis that anyway, It's just- killing three times as many people as flu and pneumonia combined. That's the prediction for 2022 is that COVID will kill three times as many people as flu and pneumonia combined. Interesting to see if it comes up in the debate or whether they continue to kind of make it a COVID-free zone. Or just pretend that coronavirus doesn't exist. Even though they're all getting it. Um, Van, that's a bit of a downer. So let's have some good news. It is It is a bit of a downer. And I'd just like to shout out to our beloved union comrades, comrades from the CEPU in Tasmania, who are awesome, who told us about this fantastic good news story. And we absolutely encourage people to send us good news stories. There's not enough good news shared in the world. And this one's about offshore wind and coral reefs, right? Yeah, this is awesome. So there's a Danish company 
surprisingly, Danish, proud social democracy. Those scandos, they know what they're about. Yeah, they really do. Having done a bit of work in Denmark and Sweden, and Ben has lived in Norway, huge fans of- uh, Love the scandos. Love the scandos. So Danish energy company Orsted is doing incredible stuff with offshore wind. The Danes started transitioning their economy to a fossil-free future and got the jump on wind power, they converted a lot of their old shipyards and the jobs in those shipyards to making um, wind propulsion and propellers and things like that. Transferable skills, amazing. Yeah. What you can do with a bit of uh, fact-based uh, reasoning and industrial policy. Anyway, so Ersted make these make the components for offshore wind and run offshore yep. wind generation. Terrible. And what they noticed was that offshore wind. Um, the facilities that you build, you've got to build all of these underwater substrata, obviously, yeah. so the the tower, the wind towers stay up. Yes. That they create these sort of cooler channels and they were attracting coral growth and the kinds of marine life that rising temperatures are driving away from other parts of, of the ocean. Obviously, in Australia, we've had four coral bleaching events of the rather important Great Barrier Reef. Let's just remember... Coral, you know, houses and feeds 25% of world fish supplies. It's kind of very important in the ecosystem. Anyway, what Ersted are doing is they're pioneering a research program because they were looking at, you know, the way that there were marine life communities that were building around what was going on underwater. And so they're working in with one of their offshore wind plants in Taiwan where they are seeding coral and looking at coral reef regeneration physically around the wind towers that they're building. Isn't this fantastic? So this story has come to us from uh, the CEPU, Communication Electrical Plumbers Union of Australia, who who obviously their members work on wind turbines and in electricity generation and, and previously and still to this day, many still work in, in fossil fuel but are transitioning to renewables. They've sent us this story there's a renewable energy company in Denmark who've got the science right, and it's actually all leading to an improvement in coral reefs, fish stock, fish life. Like it, it you can oh, see how a civil offshore, society can actually make these things happen. Yeah, right? and offshore wind. The story that the the broader story the CPU were telling me about was that. Uh, it's a Biden program in the United States, like massively investing in offshore wind, looking at like environmental jobs, jobs in climate action, which is what Biden promised. I wrote about this for The Guardian, that Biden had set the template saying, you say climate, I say jobs. These are the jobs that will build America and restore communities and create like good local opportunity. And, of course, Albanese and Labor, 604,000 jobs. In their Powering Australia policy, five out of six, which will be in regional areas like my beloved Wollongong. Phenomenal, phenomenally good news story, Van. Look, you know, I think we need to get you to the studio, get you ready. We're going to have this debate coverage, so we're going to have to wrap up today's episode. Um, Before we do, we've got to do our shout-out because our supporters have been backing us you know, we've we've had the buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday supporter page up and running since the start of this year. And it has meant that we've been able to stay advertising and promoting the podcast to bigger and better audiences all the time, even during the election, where yes, we of course we're being outspent and we all know about Palmer and all the nonsense that goes on there. 
but we've stayed in market, so to speak, and it's because of people like these cadre supporters. Okay, so our cadre are Kerry at Jane Campbell, Leona Gibbons, someone, punch drunk veteran at Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, wise, Hanai Honda, Sam Herriot, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Christine Cole, Richard Sands, I am not on Twitter, you're a wise man, Richard, Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Atlee Archer, Linda Cartwright, Atlee Ann Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, sorry, that was intonated strangely, Susan Myers, I apologise, Billy 3 McCabe, Cara and Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, at Catagal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, at Naranga Man, who we met the other day, which was lovely. John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, slash at Red, White and Blue Lou. And then there are Extending the Reach supporters. They are Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannum, Bill Collis, Moira Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Bick Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bravo, Sandy Heinen, at Galvest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Bo Sullivan, Eliane and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Jennifer Berkeley, Andrew Bryan, Tamara James, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Keir Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Never Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, also known as at Not Sandy B., Melody Patterson, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, uh, Mazritza at Carradale 68, Frank Knee, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lupino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Other, and Pauline Bate. And we have over 300, over 300 other supporters who make a buck a week contribution and make one off contributions. And they pay for our advertising and to fix things and all the expenses that go with the show. And we just can't believe it. You might have seen we hit more than 400,000 downloads the other day, which is phenomenal in the Australian podcast market. Um, I, of course, had a moment of absolutely pure joy. We watch the podcast charts every yep. week. Ben sometimes wakes me up with happy news. And on our the lowest point of our cycle, obviously we do the show on Wednesday and Ben does uh, the weekend wrap on a Sunday. So the lowest point of our cycle is usually a Tuesday, yep. which is when you evaluate how well you're doing on your lowest day. And we were at 69. And we were above Alan Jones. And and who else were we above, Ben? Other bad people. <laughs> lots and lots of other bad people. Basically, basically that that ben whole Ben just pulled a do not say the name of the devil face. No, I, I just I genuinely couldn't remember. I'd blocked the devil out of my brain. He's Morgan. Oh no. Oh god. Yeah, we we outrated and like who's who's on some like ludicrous salary at Sky. And it just makes me so happy. I'm in my squeaky chair wrangling the dog <laughs> where, you know, <laughs> the, I just want to point out that um that the microphone is resting not on a table, but on a cardboard box of uh Ben's old Trafford Lego. Um you, you know, it is literally hilarious. And with your support, this very sort of masking tape and goodwill. Uh, outfit is beating the boys from Sky. And that makes me really happy. Absolutely. And look, at our highest point, we absolutely thrash them. And it's all because people listen, they share, they comment. We'd love to see your comments. If you do listen on Apple, do leave a review there because it is it does help other people find it. That's how Apple works. They they put the podcast that people review in front of other people. That's their, their method. So do review. Uh, if you can support, we obviously welcome that. As Van has said, all the money goes back into supporting the podcast itself. Uh, it is just phenomenal. And we will be back on Sunday with the weekend wrap. 
possibly from the Queenscliff Literary Festival. Yeah. Where Van will be conducting panels on Saturday and Sunday. Yep. So on Saturday, I'll be talking about my book, QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cult. And on Sunday, I'll be talking about attacks on the ABC. Because I don't work there, I can talk about it freely. Yeah, that's right. And of course, as I always like to say, this election put the Liberals last. It's where they've put you. And... Vote one Labour for a better future. I think that's the show for this week, Van. It's an amazing show. Hopefully we'll see you online tonight at Leaders Debate 2.0 with me and the fantastic Francis Leach, who also hosts On The Job with Sally Rugg, which is a podcast that's done through the ACT, all about working people in Australia. And another shout-out to our friends at Socially Democratic who join us in our various products, which is another a podcast that we recommend wholeheartedly. Absolutely. Until then, love you, Vanny. I love you too. You are the best. Bye. Bye.